I thought about making this one long episode and then thought better of it. You're busy and you don't have time for a three-hour production. This is part two of our 200th episode retrospective. You heard from some remarkable designers, architects, set decorators, and chefs in the first part. Now I wanted to share another side of the podcast with you in part two. A series of creatives that don't necessarily fit into a specific category when talking about design and architecture in respect to what they do. So it's a little different, maybe some uh, some conversations that, that went in a different direction at the time, and I just, I loved them, I enjoyed them, and I, I thought you might as well. The Triforium is a public art project that has certainly seen better days in 2016 when I met the people who were trying to save it. Members of the Triforium project, including members of the Portland-based band Yacht, Claire Evans and Jonah Beckold, they're bringing this amazing musical sculpture back to life. Listen. It was really just us that cared about it. Like, there wasn't a huge Triforium following. This, the daughters of the artist Not have... Totally true. Well, people, like, are interested in it, but there wasn't anybody that was willing to take charge. Don't you think? Yeah. I mean, people had tried to take charge back in... Well, in 2006, Councilwoman... Then Councilwoman Jan Perry put $6,000 into the Triforium, working with a local artist named Catherine Brem. And they replaced all the incandescent bulbs and kind of cleaned it up. But it's incandescent bulbs, so fast forward 10 years, most of them have burned out at this point. I mean, it's a pariah. It went $700,000 over budget when it was built in 1975. No one wanted to touch it. Some people wanted to blow it up. (laughs) Yeah, it's just sad. It's like sad. Okay, wait. Now, let's back up a second. Okay. Explain to me what the Triforium is. Well, the major thing that people don't know about the Triforium is that it's a musical instrument. Uh, it looks like a static sculpture, which of course it is up here. But when it was originally designed, every single one of those glass cubes contains a light bulb. Every single one of those light bulbs is networked to a musical instrument and a computer system directly underneath us in the Triforium control room, which in 1975 was played like an organ by a, the Triforium, you know, uh, instrument sort of control guy and organist. And it would actually, the music would, the amplitude of the music would react with the lights, causing a dancing of lights and music in, in synchrony. The artist called it a polyphenoptic musical instrument. It wasn't just amplitude, too. It was also frequency. So there was a little bit of, like, 1970s wacko color theory involved. So, like, an A-sharp relates to a red prism, etc. Speaking of finding new passions, Jihans and Surly of Geronimo Balloons explains how taking an idea and building a business out of it completely changed her life. This is interesting, this is your thing. And I was like, no, it's just like something I do on my kitchen table, like after work. So uh, I moved to LA and all of a sudden a friend was like, let me post it on my blog. This is before Instagram, this is before like Pinterest, overnight $30,000 in sales. And I had never even really, I had never sold one before then. I didn't even know how to value it. I made up numbers. I had, a th- I had like a $1,200 balloon on the website as like a joke. People were buying it from Glendale. Yeah. So then you just show up. These are like, okay, I got to make this for a business. And then I kept showing up and people kept wanting, like people want more. So how do you go from zero to <clears throat> thousands? How do you scale so quickly? You have to decide to uh, hire help immediately, get a larger space, figure out. I mean, I I didn't even know how to like ship something from FedEx. Like there were so many things that I didn't know how to how to do. And you just you you start um, 
generally the night before something is due, you figure it out and you're in crunch mode and you don't earn any money because you've spent $200 of the $150 profit on uh, sending it overnight because you, you you put off like trying to figure, trying to find the solution. And, you know, seven years later, I figured out how to send something on FedEx. But um, you you ask questions, you, you figure it out for yourself. I'm too prideful to actually ask anyone for help. So I just literally like would research everything and I would hustle all day long and not sleep. And I didn't wash my clothes for a year. What? Which side is more challenging for you, the design side or the business side? Oh, the business side. Really? It's not even the business that's challenging for me. It's the idea that I have to like show up at the same place every day. I'm an artist. I don't want to go to work. I don't want employees. So the fact that I have to run people and humans and, and make sure that, that I'm, I'm communicating with emails all the time um, is, is more difficult than probably anything. Designing is fun. And I mean, I design everything from... You know, whether it's the food I'm serving at a dinner party to cards that I'm sending as thank yous to, uh, I don't know, like uh, my backyard, like everything to me is creating a bit of beauty. But, um, you know, when you're when you're on the clock, it's a little bit different. So now I'm learning how to sustain and I'm seven years in learning how to sustain something and it has many different iterations. So now I don't sell balloons with tassels hanging off. I don't show up to restaurants. I work in a different creative space. That was Jihan. Now there are fine artists who found their calling and built a life around that. Artists like Hunt Slonem. I always wanted to be an artist since I was a little kid. Drew a picture of myself in first grade standing in an easel painting. I've never swayed from my desire. I am so grateful. I had no other talents that took me away from it. Um, you know, I know so many people that are blessed in 15 areas and have to choose. I only wanted to paint, which is kind of a backward desire in the world we live in today. It is. But I get such a thrill out of painting every day, and I'm doing monumental sculptures now, and huge. I just did a project in D.C. for the Hamilton Restaurant. I did Bryant Park Grill in New York. I'd done a 86-foot mural for the World Trade Center under the W recreation of the WPA project. Love working on a large scale, love doing public art. I have a performing arts center in Louisiana that has all my bayou paintings. I'm inspired by, I'm very inspired by my travels. So tell me about this, you were talking about carving into the paint and carving into the art. I use in, the, in I'm the only artist that I know of that uses both sides of the brush. I use the front to paint the brush, I mean to paint with the brush on the front where many layers of paint, and then I carve the back of the brush to a point and I make marks into the paint, which I refer to as cross-hatching. When did, when, Same brush. When did you start doing that and why? After my trips to India in the 80s, I started doing it and I got very excited by antique frames and I started buying large, like gallons of paints, not, you know, oil paints, specially made for me. And I started painting faster, and I lived with a 40-foot birdcage in where the area that I painted. And I just went, hey, I'm gonna make these marks to indicate the cage, because I was looking for a way of making my work look more modern. What is art? or design for that matter, without like-minded souls to share it with. Haley Zaki is the founder of the LA Design Festival, a showcase for LA's creatives from virtually every design discipline. 
Haley is smart, crazy talented, and driven. Well, we actually, um, it's three weeks was amazing. And we, we kind of started with that three-week window to allow anybody who wanted to, to have an event on the calendar to have a larger window in which to participate. But as the years went on, we realized that it was we needed to kind of distill the programming down. LA is such a huge city. Um, it's kind of difficult to you know, experience everything, even in a three-week period. So by distilling everything down to four days, even though that's a shorter amount of time, we're kind of focusing it um, programmatically and geographically, which makes it easier for people to experience, we think. And we kind of took the model of the Detroit Design Festival. We created a collaboration with them, and we went and visited them last year. Um, and we really thought that this kind of four-day window was a perfect opportunity to give a great cross-section. Um, you can't possibly cover everything in LA. It's impossible. So we're just kind of looking at it as a, a great, like, perfect piece of the pie for four days. It's still very much a crowdsourced festival. We don't have a um, sort of assigned curator or a sort of celebrity voice that goes through and, and kind of um, shapes the programs. We really listen to the creative communities. We look and um, we kind of vet all of the submissions that people send to us. Um, we happen to know a lot of the creative um, people in all of these different industries and very often I mean since year three I would say we've really just been growing organically and people come to us at any point during the year with ideas and thoughts knowing that the festival is coming in June and we kind of work around what the communities are telling us. Speaking of simply remarkable events Troy Hansen and Megan Riley co-founders of the West Edge Design Fair have put together a world-class design and architecture-focused event. They do so much to help connect the industry. This is a recap from 2015. Troy and Megan, talk about the origins of the show. Well, we were working together on an event in New York. Uh, our former employer owned a show in New York that was uh, that was sponsored by Architectural Digest. And uh, for many years, our clients were asking us with increasing frequency to do something on the West Coast so that they could engage the A&D community here as well as at our show in New York. Uh, it became clear to us that our former employer was not going to expand to the West Coast, so we decided, uh, given the increased number of requests we were getting, we decided to do it on our own. You have the, you have the showroom floor, you have the floor where mm -hmm. you have showrooms, designers, products, you have retailers, you, you've got all this going on, but then you've, you've, also, you've also curated this remarkable group of, of individuals to present these panels which are just so, so fun to listen to. Yeah, we have been incredibly uh, fortunate to have such a great roster of talent and no shortage of uh, presenters and media partners who are happy to moderate and get on board. Um, we cater both to the trade audience as well as the consumer audience. So Thursday and Friday of the show, all of the programming is really geared more for the design community. And then Saturday and Sunday, uh, the topics switch a little bit and are geared more to the homeowner. What I loved about West Edge is that you guys, when you, it was a, it was a breath of fresh air. It was really not that, not. It's just different from everything else that's been here in the past. Was that, was that a conscious decision to look at what else was being presented and to say, okay, we're gonna, we're gonna go in a different direction, and and here's what we think people want to see. I think it was a very conscious decision to do so. We've been in the trade show business for 25 years collectively, and have been to just about every trade show and convention center in the country and well beyond that. So 
when we came to the West Coast, we knew the vibe was much more casual. We didn't want to have a convention center environment, uh, anything that was too stuffy. We wanted something that felt the opposite of a trade show. So something very entertaining, very social. Uh, we also wanted to make sure that the show looked more like a curated art fair than rows of random booths, exhibit booths. So uh, I think the Barker Hangar was a perfect venue for us because we can use both the indoor and outdoor space. Our outdoor space is immensely popular with our attendees. Uh, but it was a very conscious decision. We Every year we want to continue to improve, but we, we like the direction the show has gone and the way it feels. This leads me to the ideas we need to talk about that aren't always easy. Emil Nicolau is an intellectual property attorney. I, I know him from my days at Playboy. We should be hearing from him. Why? Because he's crazy smart, and if you listen to what he has to tell you, you can protect your ideas. That doesn't mean you can keep them from getting stolen. It means you know what your options are. Choosing not to defend your intellectual property rights, that's a choice. Not knowing your intellectual property rights, that's a crime. But an interesting point you made as well was, was regarding trademarks. I think uh, designers and creatives can really use the trademark tool uh, to, their, to their benefit in that tr trademarks were really designed to um, prevent consumer confusion and to, to prevent other companies and competitors from sort of riding on your goodwill uh, on the, the name that you've created and, and sort of the quality of the product that you've created. And so quality and sort of um, uh, you know, the the brand itself is another huge value that you could you could protect and and stamp your your creations with, and so that at the very least the public knows this piece of of furniture was made with quality, and and I can trust it because X company made it. Um, and so trademark is another tool uh, available, and it's and it's just worth noting to distinguish between architecture and interior design. Architecture is actually specifically noted in the Copyright Act as mm -hmm. as something that is copyrightable and protectable, whereas inter interior design is sort of in that gray area. But very clear that architecture, architectural designs, absolutely protectable under the Copyright Act. Now here's some random quotes that I just really enjoyed, and I think you will as well. Here's architect. Anthony Pone. In architecture and in most arts, there's two components. Uh, architecture has the problem-solving component, where you've got to figure out the square footage, you've got to figure out for the client what the program is, how many bedrooms or how many seats in a restaurant. Uh, you've got the problem-solving of construction costs, of budget, of city codes and getting building permits. On top of all that, completely differently, you have to add the level of artistry. That you at the level of, of creativity. You take music, um, part of the work is learning all the notes on the page. You, a classical musician can spend years learning one piece trying to master the flurry of 10,000 notes that fly by in three minutes. That's not music though, that's just getting the, the notes right. After you get to that point, you then have to make it sound beautiful. You then have to add your interpretation, the lyrical aspect that makes it a, a work of art. That was architect Anthony Poon. This is designer and showroom owner Patrick Dragonette. I feel that I'm, ver I'm very blessed in that I can see things. Be I can taste food before I make it. Okay. I can put ingredients together in my head, whether it's food or flowers or a room, and I can, I can see exactly what it's going to look like without having to create it, you know? And it's, it's always very gratifying and satisfying when you do it, and then you go, yeah, yeah, that's, 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 what, that's what I saw up here. Um, 
I've, you know, when it comes to me doing a show house, one of the one of the great things for me is the fact that I own a showroom. I'm not dependent on a lot of other people's generosity to get things for the showroom. So of course I, I start at home. I start with myself, and truly, I mean, the way this room looks right now, I would be very comfortable living in this, using this dining room. This this is very me, and it stands to the fact that. My showroom, I always say, if I couldn't sell it, would I want to live with it? And, you know, there's there's that 2% probably that I wouldn't be able to say that about, but 98% of the stuff, yeah, if I had room, I could live with that. Is that because your taste is more eclectic or because... Don't use that word. Golly, I cannot believe you I can just say, said that. that. Your taste is more collected. See, it's funny because I... <laughs> more curated. Just for fun, I thought it might be interesting to, uh, to go back to right where we started. This is a clip from episode number one from 2014 with artist Douglas C. Bloom. I had been doing a more illustrative uh, style in my undergraduate work that was that talked a little bit more about kind of weird, uh, borderline nightmarish sort of children's illustrations, but they weren't scary. They were, well, I, I, didn't, I never thought they were scary. People just thought they were weird, but they seemed pretty normal to me. Um, but uh, anyway, th they were narrative, and I was sort of reaching the end of telling those stories, and I sort of feel like I embarked onto the, into, like, the desert of, of, you know, there was, like, this break in my artistic thought process, and I just went out, and for eight months, I made art every day, something different, I was painting with uh, nail polish. I was painting on fabric. I was really doing a lot of experimental things uh, because I didn't know what I wanted to do. Um, and then I got this great idea. I'll paint the most traditional painting I can think of, and maybe that will spark something. Well, so I painted it as a house with a garden, and it was very traditional, and it there was nothing magical there. Uh, so disappointed as I was, I picked up a rag and I started to wipe the painting off. The phone rang. It was my wife. It was my girlfriend then, but my wife now. And I went and picked it up and talked to her. And as I hung up the phone, I looked back at the painting and there was a small section that looked like a photograph. I had wiped the painting in such a way that the blur of the wiped paint turned out looking more like a photograph than a painting. And I thought... Now there's something I need to really explore. So now fast forward, uh, that, was, uh, that was in 1999. I, I entered graduate school with this blur in mind uh, and the theme started of, uh, I was gonna paint these dream, American dream houses, these huge houses that nobody I knew could, could really afford or move into, but they were beautiful and they were geometric and the light hit them just right and they were very uh, design oriented the, with the results. Um, so, so yeah, the, like I said, the style came before the themes. I went through homes for a while. This seems like a good time uh, to share some of the things that have made an impact on me after doing this show for five years. And keep in mind, I, I am neither a designer nor an architect, not a chef nor a set decorator. However, I have produced design houses, hosted design industry events, published thousands of hours of content, both my own for Convo by Design, as well as that for some of the biggest names in design. Because of this, here are some of the most impactful lessons that I've learned that you might want to consider. Say yes.
Be open to new ideas, even if they are completely opposite to your own. Collaborate whenever possible. Experiment. Try something different. Mix metals. Use the color. Uh, you know the one. You can always repaint it and cover uh, and redesign. Whatever. But give it a try. Take your intellectual property rights as well as those of others seriously. Choosing not to act is still a choice. Know your options. Ask more questions. Listen to your inner voice. And finally, know your value. I have also benefited from learning about the superpowers of others. Uh, my favorites, architects, you see the minute details and plan for all potential outcomes. Designers, you have creativity oozing from every pore, and I love it. Set decorators, don't say no. They are MacGyver-like in their abilities to create options and fabricate ideas. Chefs, you are truly creative warriors who literally battle using knives. Trade show producers see the direction the business is going and try to hit it at a future point, not the present. That's not easy, and it requires a, a, a certain skill like those that you've heard here. Publishers, you see the big picture, and we all appreciate that. Editors, uh, you see through the obvious. And PR pros, you tell amazing stories. Thank you. Speaking of which, thank you to everyone who's been a part of the first 200 episodes, not the least of which are all of my guests, for sharing your stories, your projects, your ideas, and most importantly, your time. Thank you to everyone uh, behind the scenes who have assisted in booking, coordination, load in, load out, scheduling, parking, image clearance. Thank you uh, for, for this and so much more. As we opened, thank you. Thank you for listening. You made a choice when you started listening to the show and watching our videos. I appreciate your time, your input, and your support over the past five seasons of Convo by Design. Uh -huh.